welcome to Bun Bun's Storytime, a podcast where I tell stories to listeners. In today's very special ad-free two-part season finale, we learn why Hermes goes to Juvie and how Dionysus invented a refreshing beverage. So join me as I hop in. Hermes goes to Juvie. It would be faster to list the things Hermes wasn't the god of, because that guy had a lot going on. He was the god of travel, so he was the patron of anyone who used roads. That meant merchants, messengers, ambassadors, traveling performers, and herders bringing their livestock to market. But it also meant bandits, thieves, drifters, and those annoying caravans of retired people in RVs heading south for the winter. Hermes was in charge of guiding dead souls to the underworld. He was Zeus's personal FedEx service, carrying his boss's messages all around the globe with guaranteed overnight delivery. He was also the god of commerce, languages, thievery, cheeseburgers, trickery, eloquent speaking, feasts, cheeseburgers, hospitality, guard dogs, birds of omen, gymnastics, athletic competitions, cheeseburgers, cheeseburgers, and telling fortunes with dice. Okay, I just tossed in the cheeseburgers to see if you were paying attention. Also, I'm kind of hungry. Basically, Hermes was in charge of anything and everything you might encounter while traveling. The good stuff and the bad. So if you take a trip, you'd better hope that Hermes is in a good mood. Otherwise, you'll wind up sleeping in the airport or stuck on the side of the road with a flat tire. Since everyone in ancient Greece needed to travel at one time or another... Hermes was an important, well-respected dude. Hard to believe that he was born in a cave and got arrested when he was just 12 hours old. Now his mom, Maya, well, she tried to keep him out of trouble. She was a titan, the daughter of Atlas. And when she became pregnant with Zeus's baby, which makes her like, what, girlfriend number 458? Is anyone really keeping track? She tried to protect herself so that she wouldn't end up like most of Zeus's girlfriends, cursed and harassed by Hera. Maya hid in a cave on Mount Cyllene in central Greece, where she gave birth to cute little Hermes. She realized that her kid was a baby god, so she decided she had better be careful. You can never tell when a baby god will start dancing and singing and shooting people. She'd heard stories from Leto. Maya nursed baby Hermes and swaddled him tight in his blankets so he couldn't move or get into any trouble. She placed him in a woven basket for a cradle and began singing lullabies about the different gods and their favorite animals. Because even back then, baby songs were all about farm animals and stuff. She sang about Artemis and her dogs, Poseidon and his horses, Apollo and his herd of sacred cows, the finest and tastiest cattle in the world. Soon, Hermes was sleeping peacefully. Maya stumbled to her bed and passed out, because giving birth, especially to a god, was incredibly hard work. As soon as Hermes heard his mom snoring, he opened his eyes. The young god struggled in his swaddling blankets. Seriously? he murmured. Born for 30 minutes and I'm already in a straitjacket? Mom must really not trust me. <laughs> Smart lady. He wiggled free and jumped out of the crib. Hermes still looked like a newborn, but only because he wasn't ready to start growing yet. 
He figured a baby could get away with stuff that an older kid couldn't. He stretched his arms, did a few jumping jacks, and hiked up his diapers. All that singing about cows made me hungry, he said. I could go for a steak. He strolled out of the cave, figuring it couldn't be too hard to find Apollo's cattle. He had only gone a few steps when he tripped on something hard. Ow! Hermes knelt down and realized that he'd stumbled over a tortoise. Hey, little buddy, Hermes said. You're the first animal I've run across. I guess you'll be one of my sacred creatures. How would you like that? The tortoise just stared at him. That's a nice shell you've got. Hermes wrapped his knuckles on the tortoise's back. All dappled and pretty. How about I take you inside the cave where I can get a better look? I won't hurt you. Hermes was strong for a baby. Actually, he was strong for anybody. He picked up the tortoise and brought it inside. Looking over its shell, he had a sudden idea. He remembered the way his mother's voice had echoed through the cave when she sang her lullaby, becoming louder and richer. Hermes had enjoyed that. This tortoise shell might amplify sound the same way, like a miniature cave, if there was no tortoise inside it. You know what, little buddy, Hermes said. I changed my mind. I'm afraid I will hurt you. So, gross out alert, Hermes chopped off the tortoise's head and legs. He scooped out the rest of it with his mom's soup ladle. Hey, I'm sorry. Back then, people butchered animals all the time for meat or hide or shell or whatever. Anyway, once Hermes hollowed out the shell, he blew into it. The sound echoed deeply, but it wasn't quite what he wanted. Outside the cave, he could hear owls, crickets, frogs and a bunch of other critters making sounds at different pitches, all at the same time. Hermes wanted something like that. A bunch of sounds simultaneously. Over by the fire, he had spotted some long, stringy sheep tendons that Maya had set out to dry for sewing or whatever. Hermes thought, Hmm. He stretched one tendon between his foot and his hand. He plucked it with his free hand, and the gut string vibrated. The tighter he made the string, the higher the note. Oh yeah, he said. This'll work. He glanced at his mom to make sure that she was still asleep. Then Hermes set to work. From his mom's loom, he took a couple of wooden dowels and ran them through the tortoise shell so that they snuck out of the neck hole like horns. Then he fastened a third dowel across the top, between the two braces, so they kind of look like football goals. He ran seven strings from the top of the neck to the base of the tortoise shell. Then he tuned the strings to different pitches. When he strummed, the sound was amazing. Hermes invented the first stringed instrument, which he decided to call a lyre. I think maybe it's because he's a liar. I don't know, but I'm willing to put money on that. If he'd spent a few more hours working, he probably could have invented the acoustic guitar, the stand-up bass, a Fender Stratocaster. But by now he was really hungry. He hid his new lyre in the blankets of his cradle and set out to find those yummy, magical cows. He climbed to the top of Mount Selene 
Hey, no big deal for such a buff baby. And peered across Greece, watching and listening. Apollo kept his cows well hidden at night, in a secret meadow in Pieria, which was about 300 miles north of Selene. But Hermes had excellent senses. In no time, he heard a distant, Moo! Another cow said, Shh, we're hiding! The first cow said, Ooh, sorry. Up on the mountaintop, Hermes grinned. Ha! I've got you now, cows! Three hundred miles! <laughs> no problem. Hermes ran there in about an hour, which must have looked really strange, this newborn god tearing through Greece, his hands still covered in tortoise blood. Fortunately, it was nighttime, and no one really saw him. When he got to the secret meadow, Hermes drooled at the sight of so many delicious, big, fat, healthy heifers, hundreds of them grazing in the tall grass between the base of a mountain and the sandy shores of the Mediterranean. I don't want to be too greedy, he said to himself. Maybe I'll just take 50 or so, but how to cover my tracks? He couldn't just stuff 50 cows in a sack and sneak away. And if he herded them, Apollo would easily be able to follow the hoofprints of so many animals. Hermes stared at the beach. Then he examined some nearby crepe myrtle trees. Not sure what he was doing exactly, he broke off some twigs and young branches from the myrtles. He remembered back in the cave, his cradle had been a woven basket and he started to weave the branches and twigs into big paddles. He wrapped these around his feet and created the first snowshoes, which was pretty amazing, since it really never snowed in Greece. Hermes took a few steps in the grass, then on the sand. The paddle shoes left wide, vague impressions that completely masked the size of his feet. Perfect, he thought. That covers me. And now for the cows. He waded across the meadow in his new shoes. He managed to separate the herd, shooing 50 of the fattest, juiciest cows away from the rest. Those 50 he drove sideways towards the beach. Once they reached the sand, Hermes snapped his fingers and whistled to get the cows' attention. When all 50 of them were looking at him, their tails facing the ocean, he said, Okay, guys, now back it up. Back it up. Ever tried getting 50 cows walking backward? It's not so easy. Hermes kept their attention on him, whistling and making backup noises like, Beep, beep, beep. The cattle shuffled backward, right into the surf. Then Hermes turned them south and herded them a few hundred yards through the waves before leading them onto dry land again. When he looked back, he had to appreciate his own trickery. It looked as if 50 cows had marched out of the sea and joined the main herd. No one would be able to tell where the missing cows had gone. Hermes had left no footprints that could be traced back to him. He led the cows south through the fields of Greece. By this time, it was after midnight, so Hermes figured he couldn't be seen. Unfortunately, one old mortal former named Battis was out tending his grapevines. Maybe Battis couldn't sleep, or maybe he always pruned his grapes at midnight. But when he saw this little baby heading 50 cows down the road, 
The old dude's eyes bugged out of his head. What? He warbled. How? Hermes forced a smile. Sup. He considered killing the old man. He didn't want any witnesses. But Hermes was a thief, not a murderer. Besides, he already had the blood of an innocent tortoise on his hand. I'm just taking my cows for a walk. What's your name, old-timer? Battis. Battis couldn't believe he was having a conversation with a baby. Maybe he was still asleep in bed, dreaming. Well, Battis, said Hermes, it would be best if you forgot you saw me. Anybody asks? I was never here. Do that, and I'll make sure you get some awesome blessings when I take my place on Mount Olympus. Okay? Mmm, okay. Cool. And hey, is that a knife in your belt? Could I borrow that? Battis gave the baby god his pruning knife, and Hermes led his cattle onward. Finally, Hermes found a nice cave where he could hide the stolen cows. He penned 48 of them inside so he could eat them later, or maybe sell them on the black market. He hadn't decided yet. Then he used the old man's knife to butcher the last two. Again, a pretty creepy image. A baby god with a knife, slaughtering cows. But Hermes wasn't squeamish. He built a fire and sacrificed the best cuts of meat to the Olympian gods. Including himself, naturally. Then he put more meat on the spit, roasted it, and stuffed himself with tasty beef. Ah, that was so good, Hermes belched with appreciation. Man, it's getting late. Or... Early, I guess. I'd better get home. He cleaned up in a nearby stream, because he didn't think his mom wanted to see her newborn child covered in blood. Then, just for fun, he took a couple of cow bones, hollowed them into flutes, and tied them together at one end in a V, so that he could play them both simultaneously. Because just one flute is boring. He waddled home with a full belly, playing soft music on his new double flute to keep himself awake. He got back to Maya's cave just before dawn, crawled into his cradle, and tucked his V-flute under his blankets with his lyre. Then he passed out. Even for a baby god, it had been a long first night. The next morning, Apollo flew to Pieria to count his cows. He always liked to start the day by admiring his cattle. When he realized that 50 of them were missing, he freaked he ran around yelling, Here cows! Here cows! He found hoofprints leading out of the sea, as if his cattle had gone for a swim and then returned. But that made no sense. He saw some huge, shallow indentations on the sand, like a very thin guy with size 25 shoes had been walking around. But again, that made no sense. Apollo searched most of the morning, until finally he came across the old farmer, Battis, who was still pruning his vines. After the talking baby incident, Battis hadn't been able to get any sleep. Old man, Apollo called. Have you seen 50 cows walking this way? Possibly led by a very lightweight giant with size 25 shoes? Battis winced. He was no good at lying. 
Apollo could tell immediately that the farmer was trying to hide something. I might add, said Apollo, that I am a god. It would be a very good idea to tell me the truth. Badis heaved a sigh. It was a baby. Apollo frowned. What now? Badis told him the story, which was so weird, Apollo decided it must be the truth. Apollo knew of only one newborn god. He'd heard rumors that the titan Maya had given birth last night on Mount Selene. Apollo always tried to keep up with the latest gossip. It seemed unlikely that a newborn child could be responsible for a cattle theft 300 miles away. But Apollo himself had started singing and dancing as soon as he came out of the womb. So it wasn't impossible. He flew down to Maya's cave and woke up the mama titan. Your kid stole my cows, he told her. Maya rubbed her eyes. She looked at baby Hermes, still lying in his cradle, swaddled in blankets. Though his belly did look a lot bigger. And was that a dribble of A1 steak sauce on his chin? Uh, you must have the wrong baby, Maya said. He's been here all night, Apollo snorted. <laughs> it had to be him. Look at the steak sauce on his chin. My cows are probably stashed around here somewhere. Maya shrugged. Well, you're welcome to look. Apollo tore through the cave, searching inside pots, behind the loom, under the bedrolls. Amazingly, 50 cows were not hidden in any of those places. Finally, Apollo marched to the baby's cradle. All right, kid. This up. Where are my cattle? Hermes opened his eyes and tried to look as cute as possible. Cuckoo. Nice try, Apollo grumbled. I can smell the beef on your breath. Hermes stifled a curse. He knew he should have eaten some breath mints. Dear cousin Apollo, he said brightly. Good morning to you. You think I've stolen cattle? Can't you see that I'm just a little baby? Apollo balled his fists. Where are they, you little punk? I've no idea, Hermes said. How could a little guy like me hide 50 cows? <laughs> Apollo cried. I never said there were 50. Ah, tortoise poop. You are under arrest for thievery, Apollo said. I'm taking you to Mount Olympus for the judgment of Zeus. Apollo picked up the entire cradle and flew off to Mount Olympus. When he set the cradle in front of Zeus and explained that this newborn baby was a cattle thief, the other guards started giggling, but Zeus silenced them. This baby is my son, Zeus said. I'm sure he's capable of anything. Well, Hermes, did you steal Apollo's cattle? Hermes stood up in his cradle. No, father. Zeus raised an eyebrow. He casually picked up one of his lightning bolts and tested the point. I'll give you a moment to reconsider your answer. Did you steal Apollo's cows? Yes, father. But to be fair, I only killed two. The rest are safe and sound. And when I slaughtered the cows, I sacrificed the first meat to the gods. And then you stuffed yourself, Apollo growled. Well, I'm one of the gods, too, Hermes said. 
But all of you got a portion, of course. I would never forget to honor my relatives. The gods muttered among themselves and nodded. The baby might be a thief, but at least he was a respectful thief. This is ridiculous, Apollo cried. Father Zeus, he stole from me. Put him in juvie. Put him on the chain gang. Zeus suppressed a smile. He knew he had to be just, but he also couldn't help admiring Hermes' audacity. Hermes, you will immediately show Apollo where you've hidden his cows. Then you will pay Apollo whatever price he demands for the cows that you killed. I'll throw him into Tartarus, Apollo yelled. That'll be my price. Zeus shrugged. You'll have to work that out between yourselves. Now, off with you. Hermes sighed. As you wish, father. Apollo, you drive. I'll navigate. Apollo picked up the cradle and flew off with Hermes. The baby god directed him to the secret cave where he'd hidden the cattle. But he took a roundabout route. He was furiously thinking about how he could avoid punishment. When Apollo saw the missing cows, he calmed down a little bit, but he was still angry with Hermes. It's Tartarus time, Apollo snarled. I'll throw you so far into the abyss. Hermes pulled out his lyre from his blankets of his cradle and began to strum. Apollo listened, spellbound. He didn't dare interrupt until Hermes was through. What? Where? How? Oh, this? Hermes said casually. Oh, I call it a liar. I invented it last night. His fingers flew across the strings, creating a waterfall of beautiful notes. I must have it, Apollo said. I'm the god of music. Please. I, I must have it. Oh, but you were going to throw me into Tartarus, Hermes said sadly. I'll need my lyre to cheer me up down there in the dark. Forget Tartarus, Apollo said. Give me the lyre, and we'll call it even. Hmm, Hermes said. And I get to keep the rest of these cows? What? Apollo demanded. Hermes played another melody as bright as sunlight through the trees. Sure, yeah, whatever, Apollo said. Fine, you can keep the cows. Just give me the lyre. Wonderful! Hermes tossed the lyre to Apollo. Then the baby god pulled out his double flute, which he decided to call his syrinx. He started playing that, and Apollo's mouth hung open. Don't tell me you invented that, too! Hmm? Hermes paused. Oh, yeah, yeah, just a little something I thought up after dinner. It's for sale. For the right price. Hermes played a little Mozart, and Apollo cried. I must have it. The girls will go wild for that. I'll offer you... Well, I've got some nice magic items back at my apartment. A herald staff I'm not using, some flying shoes, and a sword. You can have all three. Hermes considered that. Throw in the power of prophecy, and it's a deal. Apollo scowled. Mm, I can't do that. Prophecy is my thing. Tell you what, I'll give you the power to tell fortunes with dice. Nothing fancy, but it is a good party trick, and you can make some decent money that way. Deal. Deal. So Apollo and Hermes ended up becoming best friends. Apollo forgot about the cattle thievery, 
He didn't even mind that he'd been totally ripped off on the price of the lyre and the syrinx flute. Hermes got his own herd of cattle, which was how he became the god of cattle herders. He got a pair of winged sandals that made him faster than any god. He got a sword made from adamantine and gold, with a blade so sharp it could cut through almost anything. He got a herald staff, like human messengers carried when they traveled from city to city to show that they had diplomatic immunity. Except that Hermes' staff was magical. Normally, a herald's staff had two white ribbons twined around it. Hermes' staff had two living snakes instead. It also had the power to put anyone to sleep or to wake them up, which was really helpful to a god of thieves. The staff became known as a caduceus, just because I knew you needed another complicated word to remember. Oh, and the old dude Battus, who told on Hermes? Hermes flew back to the farm and turned Battus into a pillar of stone. Battus is still sitting there overlooking the road, wishing he'd never seen that stupid cattle-thieving baby. Hermes grew into an adult, in a couple of days, being a god and all. Usually he appeared as a handsome teenage guy with curly black hair and just the beginnings of a wispy mustache. Of course, being a god, he could appear any way he wanted to. Dionysus creates a refreshing beverage. So, a while back I told you about this princess named Samel who got vaporized while she was pregnant with Zeus's kid. Anyway, Zeus had to rescue the premature baby by sewing him into his right thigh to keep him alive. Yeah, I know. Just another boring day in the life of a god. Several months later, the baby was getting big and uncomfortable in Zeus's leg, so Zeus figured the kid was ready to be born. Zeus undid the stitches, and amazingly, the kid came out alive and healthy. Zeus wrapped him in a blanket, but he didn't know anything about raising babies, so he called in Hermes. Hey, Zeus said, take this baby down to the mortal world. I think Samel had a sister or something. Find her and ask her to raise this kid until he's older. Sure, boss. Hermes took the baby and looked him over. Is he a god or a demigod or what? I'm not sure yet, Zeus said. We'll have to wait and see. But I don't want to be changing diapers in the meantime. I hear ya. What's his name? The kids started screaming and yelling. For now, Zeus decided, let's just call him Bacchus. Hermes grinned. The noisy one? Nice. One more thing. Hera will be looking for him. She hasn't been able to mess with the kid since he's been stuck to my thigh. But she'll notice that the big lump is gone now. Yeah, that lump was kind of obvious. Might be best if Bacchus's aunt raises him like he's a girl. You know, just for a while. Maybe that'll throw Hera off the scene. Hermes frowned. He didn't see how raising the baby as a girl would help. Hera wasn't easily fooled, but Hermes knew better than to argue with the boss. Got it, he said. Off I go! Hermes had no trouble finding the baby's Aunt Eno and Uncle Athamus. They agreed to raise Bacchus with their own children, and the boy grew up at a normal human rate. Not super accelerated, like a god. Everybody decided he must be a demigod, but that just made Zeus more fearful that Hera would try to rip the kid apart. 
As requested, Eno and Athamas dressed Bacchus in a girl's clothing to keep his secret identity. The first few years of his life, Bacchus was very confused. He wasn't sure why his foster parents called him he in private and she in public. At first, he thought all kids were treated that way. Then, when he was three years old, Hera struck. Somehow she discovered where the baby was living, and she flew down from Olympus, intent on revenge. By the time Zeus found out what was happening, he only had a few seconds to act. He managed to zap Bacchus in the form of a goat so that Hera wouldn't notice him. But Bacchus's foster parents weren't so lucky. Hera spotted them and inflicted them with a violent form of madness. Uncle Athamas thought his oldest son, Lyrkos, was a deer and killed him with a bow and arrow. Aunt Eno thought their younger son, Melikertes, needed a hot bath. A really hot bath. So she drowned him in a basin of boiling hot water. Then Eno and Athamas realized what they had done. In despair, they both leaped off the side of a cliff and plummeted to their deaths. That Hera, hmm, she's all about wholesome family values. Zeus managed to retrieve Bacchus and turn him back into a child, but the whole experience kind of traumatized him. He learned that madness could be used as a weapon. He learned that goats were good. In fact, the goat became one of his sacred animals. And he learned that you couldn't hide who you were just by putting on different clothes. Later on, he became the god of anybody who felt confused about his or her own gender. Because Dionysus could relate. Anyway, Zeus looked around for a new set of foster parents. Big shock. Not many people volunteered after hearing what Hera had done to Eno and Athamas. Finally, Zeus flew to Mount Nyssa on the Greek mainland and convinced the nymphs there to raise Bacchus. Zeus promised to make them immortal if they just did him this one favor. And that was a hard deal to refuse. Young Bacchus became known as the godly son of Zeus who lives on Nyssa, which got shortened to Dios, god of Nyssa, which eventually became his new name, Dionysus. Though he was still called Bacchus the noisy one, especially after he ate beans or cabbage, which is way more than you wanted to know, Dionysus grew up on Mount Nyssa, with the nymphs as his foster mothers and the satyrs as his foster fathers. Satyrs are pretty wild and chaotic, so it's no surprise Dionysus turned out a little out of the ordinary. Occasionally, he played with mortal friends from the nearby farms, and Dionysus became popular for his magic tricks with plants. He discovered early on that he could produce drinkable nectar by crushing any kind of plant matter. Twigs, leaves, bark, roots, whatever. Cypress tree syrup? No problem. Fennel juice? Yum. The other kids would challenge him like, Bet you can't make a drink out of that thorn bush. Dionysus would pick up a rock, smash some branches, and golden sap would flow from the wounded plant. Dionysus would collect it in cups, mix some water, add a miniature umbrellas, and voila! Iced thorn bush spritzers for everyone. An entertaining trick, but none of Dionysus' early recipes caught on. Fennel juice just wasn't that popular, after all. Then one day, Dionysus was out in the woods with his best friend, a young satyr boy named Ampelos. 
They spotted a thick vine curled around the branch of an elm tree about 20 feet above their heads. Dionysus froze in his tracks. What is it? Ampelos asked. That vine up there, Dionysus said. What kind of plant is that? Ampelos frowned. The vine didn't look like anything special to him. It was thick and bristly, with wide green leaves and no fruit or flowers that he could see. Well, it's not ivy, or honeysuckle. I don't know. Never seen it before. Come on. But Dionysus stood transfixed. There was something important about the plant. Something that could change the world. I have to get a closer look. Dionysus tried to scale the trunk of the elm. But he was a lousy climber. He fell on his butt in the leaves. Ampelos laughed. Oh, if it's so important to you, I'll get it. Leave the climbing to the satyrs. Dionysus felt a sudden chill of dread. He didn't want Ampelos going up there. But he also wanted the vine. Just be careful, he said. Ampelos rolled his eyes. I've climbed higher trees than this. The young satyr clambered up the trunk and was soon straddling the elm branch. Easy peasy. He started prying the vine from the branch, feeding the end down to Dionysus like a rope. Got it? Dionysus reached up and grabbed the vine. What happened next isn't clear. Maybe Dionysus pulled the vine too hard. Maybe Ampelos reached down too low. Whatever the case, Ampelos lost his balance and fell, tangled in the vine. Twenty feet isn't so far, but it was enough. Ampelos hit his head on a rock with a sickening crack. Dionysus wailed in horror. He embraced his friend, but the young satyr's eyes were already dull and empty. He wasn't breathing. Sticky blood matted his hair and stained the leaves of the vine. Ampelos was dead. Dionysus sobbed. If he hadn't wanted this stupid vine, his friend would still be alive. His sadness mixed with anger. He glared at the satyr's blood on the green leaves. He snarled. You will pay for this vine. You will bear the sweetest fruit to make up for this bitter loss. Bear fruit. The vine trembled. The body of Ampelos dissolved into mist. The satyr's blood soaked into the plant, and clusters of small fruit popped up, ripening instantly to dark red. Dionysus had created the first grapevine. He wiped away his tears. He had to make his friend's death mean something. He would learn to use this new plant. The grapes looked so full of juice. So Dionysus picked several bunches. He carried them to a nearby creek and found two large flat stones. He crushed the grapes between the rocks, inventing the first wine press. Dionysus collected the juice in his drinking cup, which he always kept at his belt. He held the liquid in the sunlight and worked his magic, swishing the grape juice around until it fermented into something else, something new. He took a sip and his taste buds nearly exploded. This, he pronounced, is good stuff. Dionysus called it wine. He made enough to fill his flask. Then he looked back wistfully one more time at the place where Ampelos had died. The grapevines were going crazy now, spreading all over the woods, 
blooming with a vengeance and bearing more grapes. Dionysus nodded, satisfied. If he had his way, the whole world would be filled with grapevines in Ampelos's honor. He went back to the cave where he lived on Mount Nyssa. He showed his discovery to one of his foster moms, a nymph named Ambrosia. Yes, she was named after the godly food. I don't know why. At least it's better than cookie or snickerdoodle. Ambrosia took a sip of wine. Her eyes widened. This is delicious. Where's Ampelos? Oh, Dionysus hung his head. He died, falling from a tree. That's terrible. Ambrosia took another sip. But this is good stuff. Soon she was sharing wine with all her nymph friends. The satyrs came by to see what the giggling was about. Pretty soon, the whole mountain was one giant party, with dancing and singing and tiki torches and lots of wine. Dionysus kept making the stuff and passing it around. He couldn't keep up with demand. Finally, he taught the satyrs and nymphs how to make it themselves. And by the end of the night, everybody on the mountain was an expert winemaker. The satyrs quickly discovered that if they drank too much wine, they got drunk. They couldn't think straight, see straight, or walk straight. For some reason, they found this hilarious, and they kept on drinking. An older satyr, Silenos, threw his arm around Dionysus' shoulders. You said you're a god. Yeah, I mean that. You gotta... What is this stuff called again? Wine said Dionysus. God of wine, Silenos hiccuped. Now kids, this is another good time to remind you that wine is for grown-ups. Not only is it horrible, but it could seriously mess up your life. Don't even be tempted until you're at least 40 years old. All oh, but bun bun, you wine. Get it? Wine. It sounds like the satyrs had so much fun drinking wine. Oh, it might sound that way, kids. But satyrs can be pretty stupid. You also didn't see the satyrs the morning after, when they had splitting headaches and were stumbling into the woods to puke their guts out. Still, the nymphs and satyrs were so impressed with Dionysus that they decided he must be a god. His invention was just that amazing. Maybe you're thinking, okay, it's wine, no big deal. But how does that make Dionysus a god? If I invented tuna salad, would I be a god too? But you gotta remember, wine was a major breakthrough in beverage technology. Sure, people drank water, but water could kill you, especially in the cities. It was full of bacteria and other people's garbage and well, I'm not really going to go into that. Let's just say that water was gross. Nobody had invented canned soda or even tea or coffee. So you were pretty much stuck with water or milk. Even with milk, you had to drink quickly before it spoiled, since there was no refrigeration. Then Dionysus came along and invented wine. It didn't go bad as long as you kept it bottled up. Sometimes it even tasted better if you let it sit for a few years. You could water it down so it wasn't as strong, but the alcohol would still kill germs and stuff, so it was safer to drink than regular water. 
You could even adjust the taste to make it sweeter with honey or vary the flavor by using different kinds of grapes. Basically, it was the super beverage of ancient Greece. Not only that, but if you drank a little, it would mellow you out. If you drank a lot, it would make you giddy and crazy. Some people even thought they had visions of the gods if they chugged enough wine. Again, do not try this at home. You're not going to see any of the Greek gods. You may get a close-up view of your toilet as you're throwing up, but you're not going to see any gods. Word spread quickly about the new drink. Nymphs and satyrs from Mount Nyssa traveled the countryside, telling anyone who would listen about the awesome of wine and the god who made it, Dionysus. They set up tasting booths on the side of the road. They offered starter kits, including a potted grapevine, an instruction manual for making a wine press, and access to a toll-free customer service hotline. Dionysus became famous. Even regular mortals began to gather on Mount Nyssa every night for the ultimate party. Sure, they drank too much and got wild, but it wasn't just for fun. The followers of Dionysus considered themselves religious people. They called themselves the Bacchae, the groupies of Bacchus, and partying was their way of going to church. They believed it brought them closer to all the gods, because Dionysus was destined to be the 12th Olympian. How did Dionysus feel about that? Eh, a little nervous. He was still young and insecure. He wasn't sure if he was truly a god or not. On the other hand, he was happy to see people enjoying his new beverage. By spreading the knowledge of wine, he figured he was doing something good for the world, which made him feel better about all the pain he'd been through. His mom dying before he was born, Hera driving his foster parents crazy, and of course, his best friend Amplos dying in the woods. Then one day, Dionysus got married. It only happened because he got captured by pirates. The night before it happened, the Bacchae had thrown an especially huge party on the coast of Italy. The next morning, Dionysus woke with a massive headache. While the rest of the camp was sleeping, Dionysus stumbled to the beach to go to the bathroom. Yes, of course, gods go to the bathroom. Um, at least I think. You know what? Let's move along. Anyways, he really had to go. He stood there for a long time doing his business, watching the ocean. Eventually, a ship appeared on the horizon. It got closer and closer, its black sails billowing and black pennant flapping from the top of the mast. As Dionysus watched, the ship weighed anchor. A rowboat came ashore. Half a dozen ugly-looking dudes got out and marched towards him. Arr, one said, pulling a sword. Dionysus grinned. Oh, no way! Are you guys pirates? Dionysus had heard about pirates, but he'd never met any. He was terribly excited. The pirates glanced at each other, momentarily confused. That's right, ye scallywag, said the one with the sword. I'm the captain of these salty sea dogs, and you're obviously a rich young prince. So we're taking ye hostage. Note to self, get somebody to check my pirate speak before we publish this episode. It's been a while since I've saw the Pirates of the Caribbean. Dionysus clapped his hands enthusiastically. Oh, that's fabulous! He glanced back towards the sand dunes. My army is sleeping. 
I can probably spare a few hours before they wake up. The captain narrowed his eyes at the mention of an army. But he couldn't see anyone over the tops of the dunes. So he decided the young prince must be bluffing. Dionysus certainly looked rich. Poor people didn't wear purple robes or oak leaf crowns. They didn't have nicely manicured hands, long flowing black hair, and good teeth. In fact, the captain had never seen a guy who looked so pretty. Get moving, then, the captain ordered. In the boat. Yay! Dionysus hurried to the rowboat. Do I get a tour of your ship? Do I get to walk the plank? The pirates took Dionysus aboard and sailed away. They tried to blind him, but the ropes kept falling off no matter what they tried. The captain asked Dionysus who his father was, so they could demand a rich ransom. Hmm? said Dionysus, examining the rigging. Oh, my father, Zeus. That made the pirates very uneasy. Finally, the navigator couldn't stand it. Can't you see he's a god? I mean, nobody mortal would look so... pretty. Thank you, Dionysus beamed. My secret is wine every day and lots of partying. The navigator frowned. We should take him back and let him go. This ain't gonna end well. Spit on that, yelled the captain. He's our prisoner, and we'll keep him. I love you guys, Dionysus said. But all this excitement has made me really tired. Can I take just a quick nap? Then maybe we can swab the deck or something. Dionysus curled up in a pile of ropes and started snoring. Since the pirates hadn't been able to tie him up, they let him sleep. When he finally woke up, the sun god was high in the sky. Oh, um, guys? Dionysus rubbed the sleep from his eyes. It's getting late. My army will be worried. Can we go back? Go back? The captain laughed. You be our prisoner. Since ye wouldn't tell us ye real father... We're taking you to Crete to sell you into slavery. Dionysus was tired of playing pirates. Also, he woke up cranky from naps. I told you my father was Zeus. Now turn the ship around. Or what? The captain asked. You're pretty me to death. The ship began to rattle. Grapevines sprouted from the deck and crawled up the mast. Pirates yelled in alarm as the vines completely covered the sails and began snaking down the rigging. The crew ran around in a panic, slipping on a bunch of grapes. Come, ye sieves, yelled the captain. They're just plants. Then he snarled at Dionysus. You're more trouble than you're worth, young prince. Time to die. The captain advanced with his sword. Dionysus had never tried changing his form before, but now he was thrilled to discover that he could. Suddenly, the captain found himself facing a 500-pound bear. Dionysus the bear roared at the captain, who dropped his sword and ran, only to slip on some grapes. The rest of the crew fled, heading for the prow, but a huge phantom tiger appeared on the foredeck, growling and ready to pounce. It was just an illusion, but the pirates were terrified. Everywhere they turned, Dionysus created a different phantom predator, 
a lion, a leopard, a jackalope, you name it. Finally, the pirates dove over the side. Dionysus decided the ocean was a good place for them to stay, so he turned them into dolphins, and off they swam. If you ever see a dolphin with an eye patch chattering, Arr, matey, now you'll know why. The only pirate left was the navigator, who stayed at the wheel, too terrified to move. Dionysus smiled at him. You're the only one who recognized me as a god. I like you. The navigator made a squeaking sound. Can you take me back, please? Dionysus asked. My, my lord, the navigator managed. I would, but with no crew, I can't sail far. Plus the grapevines and the rigging. Oh, right, Dionysus scratched his head. Sorry about that. The god gazed across the water. About a mile to the east, he spotted a small island. How about there? Um, that would be Naxos, my lord, I think. Perfect. Can you just drop me off? I'll find my own way back to the army. So Dionysus ended up on the island of Naxos, which was uninhabited except for a beautiful young lady, who Dionysus found weeping by the edge of a stream in the woods. She sounded so heartbroken that Dionysus sat next to her, and he took her hand. My dear, what's wrong? She didn't even seem startled, as if she didn't care about anything anymore. My, my boyfriend dumped me, she said. Dionysus' heart twisted into a pretzel. Despite her red puffy eyes and disheveled hair, the girl was absolutely gorgeous. Who on earth would be so stupid as to dump you? His, his name was Theseus, the girl said. I'm Princess Ariadne, by the way. She told Dionysus her sad story. How she'd helped this handsome guy, Theseus, escape from her father's maze, which was called the Labyrinth. Theseus had killed the Minotaur, blah, blah, blah. That's a whole other story. In the end, Theseus had promised to take Ariadne home with him to Athens. On the way, he stopped at Naxos for fresh water, dumped her on the beach, and sailed away. And you thought breaking up by texting was low? Dionysus was furious. If Theseus had been around, the god would have turned him into a bunch of grapes and stomped him. The god comforted Ariadne. He summoned wine and food, and they began to talk. Dionysus was good company. After a while, Ariadne began to smile. She even laughed when Dionysus told her about the pirates. I guess she had a strange sense of humor. As quick as that, the two of them fell in love. I will take you with me, my dear, Dionysus promised. I will never leave you. When I ascend to my throne on Mount Olympus, you will be my queen for eternity. Dionysus kept his promise. He married Ariadne, and when he was finally recognized as a god and became the 12th Olympian, he made Ariadne his immortal wife. Oh, sure, he still had occasional flings with mortals. He was a god, after all. But as far as Greek stories go, they lived happily ever after. Dionysus' last big adventure on Earth, before he became a full-time god, he decided to invade India. Why? Why not? He had traveled all over the Mediterranean and into Egypt and Syria, but whenever he tried to spread the good news about wine farther east, 
he always got stopped by angry locals. Maybe that's because Mesopotamia was where they invented beer. Maybe they didn't want any beverage competition. Anyway, he decided to make one final push to expand his market share. As far as the Greeks were concerned, India was pretty much the end of the world. So Dionysus decided to go there, take over, teach them about wine, and come back home, preferably in time for supper. His drunken followers gathered by the thousands. Some stories say that Hercules joined Dionysus for the expedition, and they had some major drinking contests along the way. Other stories say that the twin sons of Hephaestus rode into battle on a mechanical chariot and fought bravely. A couple of times, they got a little too brave and were surrounded by enemies, at which point Hephaestus himself had to come down, spray the enemy with his divine flamethrower, and bring his kids back to safety. Dionysus rode at the head of his army in a golden chariot pulled by two centaurs. A lot of towns surrendered to him in Syria. The drunken army made it all the way to the Euphrates River and constructed a bridge to get them across. The first time Greeks had gotten that far. The bridge isn't there anymore. What did you expect? It was made by a bunch of drunks. It probably fell apart in about a week. Everything was going great until the army reached India. Those Indians knew how to fight. They had their own magic, their own gods, their own bunch of nasty secret weapons. Their holy men, the Brahmins, would sit on the field of battle, looking all peaceful, and Dionysus' army would roll up, thinking the enemy was surrendering. As soon as the Greeks got close, the Indians would fire rockets into their mists. Jets of flame and blinding light, massive explosions that caused panic in the troops. After a bunch of tough battles, Dionysus finally made it to the Ganges River, which was the holy river of India. He assaulted one last fortress, a big castle on a hill as tall as the Acropolis back in Athens. His centaurs and satyrs tried a frontal assault, climbing up the rocks, but the Indians set off some magic explosions that were so powerful the Greek front lines were vaporized. Supposedly, you can still see the afterimages of satyrs and centaurs burned into the cliffs where the battle happened. At that point, Dionysus decided enough was enough. They'd made it to India. They'd introduced wine. Dionysus had collected a sweet assortment of exotic predator cats, like tigers and leopards. He'd even taken the leopard as his new sacred animal and started a fashion craze by wearing a leopard skin as a cape. The army had taken a lot of treasure. They'd met new and interesting people, killed most of them, and generally had a good time. Dionysus built a pair of pillars on the banks of the Ganges to prove that he'd been there. He bade the Indians a tearful farewell and marched back to Greece. He dropped off a load of treasure at the Oracle of Delphi in honor of the gods, and for a long time, there used to be a silver bowl in the Delphic treasure room inscribed, Taken from the Indians by Dionysus, son of Zeus and Semele. One of the old Greek writers saw it. I'm not making this up. Anyway, Dionysus finally ascended to Mount Olympus and became the last of the major gods. Cue the theme music! Cue the closing credits! Our camera pans away from the Olympian throne room where twelve gods are rolling around on their willy thrones. And cut. Whew, we did it, gang. Twelve Olympians, we collected the whole set, plus a few extra bonus gods like Persephone and Hades. 
Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to sleep. I feel like I just got back from the Dionysian Revels, and I've got a splitting headache. <laughs>